Hello and welcome to One Star Bazaar, where we review the movies critics hated in search of the unfairly underrated. Now, before we see Kit Harington in the highly anticipated final season of Game of Thrones, we're going to watch him in the box office bomb Pompeii. And as a special surprise for our season one finale, after we review the movie, we'll be joined by a history professor from the University of Arizona, my alma mater, to talk to us about the real Pompeii. So the movie was directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, written by Janet Scott Batchelor, Michael Robert Johnson, and Lee Batchelor, released February 21st, 2014. Starring Kit Harrington, Emily Browning, and Kiefer Sutherland. So, Paul W.S. Anderson. Yes. A pretty famously uh, not great director. Are you going to talk smack about the Resident Evil movies right now? Because they're awesome. But they're bad. <sighs> like, they can be awesome for awesome, what they're supposed be bad. to be, but they're not good <laughs> movies. He also did many other kind of bad action movies. But you could He's done a lot of stuff. argue that he knows how to do action. Sure. You know what I mean? So like even if Okay. Maybe the you story could, lacks a little bit, the action is still exciting. You could argue that. <laughs> For our synopsis. This movie is about a slave turned gladiator who finds himself in a race against time to save his true love, who has been betrothed to a corrupt Roman senator. As Mount Vesuvius erupts, he must fight to save his beloved as Pompeii crumbles around him. So obviously, I know nothing about this movie other than, I didn't even know that Kiefer Sutherland was in it. I knew Kate Harrington was in it, and probably some woman, because obviously there's a love story. I don't know who Emily Browning is. She's the girl from Ghost Ship. Yeah, I've never seen that movie. You're missing out. We're going to watch it. It's one of my favorite movies, it's, and it's on our list. Yeah, I'm sure it is. <laughs> um, obviously, Kiefer Sutherland is the bad guy. He's the Roman senator in the synopsis. I am You're, 98% positive. I don't remember. It's been a long time since also, I've seen it. This, it just, okay, this is going to be a gladiator knockoff, but with a disaster movie thrown in. That's my prediction, knowing very little about this movie. I will also be interested to ask our history professor later on what the actual, like, historical accuracy is of all these movies about gladiators. I mean, obviously gladiators were a thing, but this gladiator, Ben-Hur, kind of, with mm -hmm. the race, um, they definitely romanticized that. Spartacus, another one, they romanticized that period. And it's like, did that really ever happen? That's kind of the... Yeah. The main question to ask. So this movie has a 27% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 39% on Metacritic, which would put it squarely below the thresholds on both sites for our purposes. So this is not an example of a movie that maybe Rotten Tomatoes has been unfair to, whereas the Metacritic weighted score is a lot higher. They're both definitely down there. Yeah. Not as far down as they could be, but... Squarely like one star films. Here's what some critics had to say. Lou Luminick. Very interesting name, first of all. From the New York Post. A campy guilty pleasure that serves up a gladiator knockoff as an appetizer to the impressively flame-filled main course. 
That kind of sounds like he liked it, even acknowledging that it's basically a rip-off movie. Honestly, all of these reviews sound like they kind of liked it. So they're like, it's not great, but it's awesome. <laughs> Rene Rodriguez of the Miami Herald said, Pompeii is half sword and sandal epic, half disaster movie, and all guilty pleasure. That's basically what I was predicting without yes. knowing much. Peter Howell of the Toronto Star the drama is deadly, but the volcano's a blast, making Pompeii something less than the complete disaster you might expect. Like, okay, are there bad reviews of this movie? Those ones were, I mean, they weren't great. I guess like, that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like with these ones, they, they knew it wasn't a good movie, but that didn't mean it wasn't enjoyable. Okay, yeah, fair enough. You know enough. what I mean? So a movie that is still enjoyable but not great, is still going to have negative reviews. Well, yeah, obviously. That's why it's not yeah. not great, but enjoyable. Okay, well, so I actually, for once, am almost looking forward to this then. If it does end up being a fun movie, <laughs> half the time I'm just like, what am, what are, what? Why are we doing this yeah. to ourselves? <laughs> Going in, but uh, yeah. So, I mean, I do enjoy... So we have, like, medium expectations yes. for this movie. I do enjoy fun, kind of, ancient history adventure films. Yeah. Um, we liked the Clash and the Wrath of the Titans movies. Uh, they were okay. Okay. Robin Hood? I like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Even though it's not necessarily a great movie. Is that the Kevin Costner yes. one? Okay. Um... But yeah, like historical action. Yeah. And you you love like, well, like 300. Even, like 300 is a Zack Snyder film, and I really have come to dislike him and the murderous horror he has inflicted upon the DC universe. <laughs> but the man knows how to direct action, and that's what 300 is a great example of a very action-adventure film. Like, it is what it is. And so if this is kind of like that, but maybe not as grim then that would be fun. And it is, you know, like a historical legend. Well, obviously it so. happened. What I'm curious to know is, is this going to end up being an event in search of a plot that never gets there? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, let's just have an excuse for a story so we can talk about this historical disaster. Yeah. Or, you know. Yeah. And it's a great question to ask the professor, you know, how much of this is just pure speculation you know did any documentation survive from that time period about right. Pompeii and life there and everything like that so we'll get into that with him but for now let's just go ahead and watch it please enjoy this promo from our friends over at the podcast I swear it's real do you have a thing for Sasquatch have you or a loved one been abducted by aliens do you feel that your swimming pool has a kraken infestation we believe you. My name's Daniela. And I'm Katie. Listen to It's Real, I Swear, a podcast about urban legends and mysteries of our world and the next. You can find us on iTunes, Google, Spotify, and any other podcast platform. Releasing episodes every Thursday. Alright, so let's talk a little bit about Pompeii. And let's start with the acting. So how's the acting? Fine. Like, it's, there's nothing wrong with the acting in this movie. Okay, so... There's honestly very little wrong with this movie in general. Yeah. Like, 
it's not a great movie, but it's a perfectly passable movie. Right. I honestly don't understand why it is as poorly rated as it was. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the story, there's no... Like, the writing's not terrible. No, there weren't any cringy... There wasn't any cringy dialogue, you know, where you're like, what? Yeah, I mean, like, King Arthur with Charlie Hunnam, whatever... King Arthur and the whatever. Oh, yeah, the one we... The Guy Ritchie one that we yeah. watched. Like, that has some... Where you're like, nobody talked like that in <laughs> 600 AD or whatever, whenever King Arthur was. This didn't have anything like that, right? Yeah. And if anything, I feel like they... They did a lot more storytelling with the action rather than words. Like, they chose to make it a more visual story. So I mean, in the end, it basically... It is an action-adventure movie that turns into a disaster movie because uh, we know what happened in Pompeii. Yeah. You know, the city was destroyed. Volcano eruption. Spoiler alert. Sorry if you didn't know that. It was <laughs> like 2,000 years erupted. ago. <laughs> yes. And so with that, I mean, I definitely feel like this story was engaging. It was pretty engaging. Maybe people have a problem with it because it is very derivative and formulaic. Mm-hmm. I mean... It's not an exaggeration to say that a lot of elements of this movie are, in fact, just rip-offs of former movies of the same gladiator action genre. Right. And I think one thing we'll have to look at, especially when we talk to Professor B, is maybe that's just because it's historically accurate. Like as far Nate, as in, the way that the gladiator, like gladiator culture, culture worked. worked. Yeah. Yeah. So we know that they were slaves. We know that... Um, you know, they were fighting in the arena against their will, supposedly right. for a, their freedom. It, for a modern Western audience plot, you kind of have to have that underdog element, which is why it's, I mean, it's, I guess it's a trope, and this movie uses it, Gladiator uses it, where, you know, they're reenacting a historical event in their gladiatorial games, and of course, the heroes who are on the losing side end up turning the tables and winning the match you know what i'm saying yeah they don't they don't follow the script they don't follow the (laughs) script of the historical event of course much to the chagrin of the bad guy exact same thing happened in gladiator yeah exact same thing happens here again i also think that is i mean obviously not the the gladiators rebelling against that storyline but reliving common events I think was really no, popular it, it in was and... and my point is in order for us to have a story we have to have some sort of like the hero overcomes as the underdog against you know the odds stacked against him yeah and so it's a perfectly sensible thing it just has been done and so you're like oh yeah like the yeah you mm-hmm. know, gladiator did it Russell Crowe did it like whatever what else you got you know <laughs> so that's why I wonder if people just didn't weren't on board with this because it was just nothing original and exciting. Except for a volcano. Okay, well the volcano obviously is the totally thing. <laughs> Which a lot of the reviews we did read is saying like, yeah, it's gladiator, but hey, there's a really cool volcano. Right. <laughs> and speaking of the volcano, apparently we found this article on LiveScience.com and how Apparently this movie does a very good job of accurately portraying the Vesuvius eruption. Right. They added in lava bombs for 
for, for pizzazz. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the, you know, from the earthquakes to the, um, the landslides and the tsunami. The which tsunami. was a little exaggerated, which, apparently. Yeah, but apparently it's Still fairly have. accurate. And yeah. then the overhead shots of the city in the movie are actually based on scans of the city the itself. Yeah. So it, that's also a fairly accurate representation. And that's one of the reasons I picked this movie, um, along with Professor B, was because the movie did try so hard to be historically accurate when it came to the city itself. Right. The actual, the setting and the events of the disaster are historically accurate. Yeah. There was even, um, they based the, the character played by, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation... Adewale Okinwoye Agbaye. Mr. Echo from Lost. Yes. <laughs> His character is even based on one of the, the cats they found in Pompeii of a large North African man. So they took okay. that and were like, yeah, this is a gladiator. This is going to be awesome. So I definitely think that's something this movie did well. Do you think there are things it did poorly? I mean, other than what I mentioned already, as far as it being it's a little formulaic. formulaic. But it's funny because be, since they had to get to the disaster, and that has to essentially be the final act of this movie. Yeah. I would say the one problem I had probably halfway through was the pacing of the build-up story, like the the primary story, which ultimately kind of becomes secondary once the volcano shows up mm -hmm. felt very like rushed like okay we gotta like like this is gladiator but we gotta tell the whole movie of gladiator in like an hour and 10 minutes so Go. there's so there's gladiator there's the revenge story there's the love story right and then there's the volcano story right. so they are trying to pack a lot into a Which short i movie. have a problem with the love story was the thing I think that was the weakest thing. Because, like, it, when you read the blurbs, you think, oh, you know, they have some history or something. This is like Braveheart, where they were married in secret and, you know, which, of course, in that movie, spoiler alert, sorry, it was 25 years ago, she dies early on and she's not really actually an important character. But <laughs> something like that, you know, like, you think it's, they have a connection, or like Gods of Egypt, you know, yeah. They were together, and then, you know, they get torn apart, and he's, like, on this quest to get her back. No. Like, they just met. Yeah. It's one of those, you can't marry somebody you just met that day <laughs> right. from Frozen. <laughs> and so, you know, he is just supposed to be, like, a noble, kind-hearted, heroic, you know, guy. Who kills people for a living. Well, I mean, he's a quote-unquote savage yeah. gladiator, but, you know, he's got to prove, oh, no, he's not really like that. Deep down, he's more noble than the noble Romans, right? Yeah. And that's kind of the, the thing. The Romans are I definitely like, the bad guys in this right. movie. <laughs> I feel like that's just a little more... That might be the one of the more ridiculous things, the idea that he's this noble like he's grown he grows up a slave and has to like fight to survive on a daily basis like he'd just be like yeah okay have fun honey i'm out you know like you think <laughs> like he'd be a little more selfish i think but obviously because it's a movie he's got to be the hero he's got to be this noble you know heroic character 
But she is just like, oh my gosh, he's so dreamy. I want, yeah, I love him and whatever. Well, I mean, look at her alternative. Well, in yeah. I do mean, she keep her Sutherland? Yeah, fair enough. It's not like it's a surprise that young, beautiful, you know, whatever, 19-year-old women get married off to skeezy 50-year-old dudes, though. Like, that's just I mean, I'm all sure of human happened, history yeah. until, like, the 19th century and even then some. So... I mean, when, when they yeah. revealed Kit Harrington's abs, even you were like, damn. Dude, he's jacked in this movie. <laughs> he is, like, yeah. I mean, I don't know we if We don't know Game how of much Thrones... of it is airbrushing, because on 300 there was a lot of airbrushing. It's true. On Game of Thrones, I don't know if we ever really see him. I mean, we do see him shirtless in the cave with a grit... But I don't really remember him being but, like. And then when dang. and then at the end of season six, when he's on the table. Yeah, he's. He's shirtless, yeah, but, but he's, he's not, not like he's like starving at the wall, yeah, like, so he's not jacked. Is, this character is chiseled <laughs> when he steps out. Anyway, good for you, man. <laughs> Way to go, <laughs> Kit Harrington. Get them checks for being. I mean, I feel like if someone paid me. To work out, I would do well, yeah, it. That's, but that's yeah. If you had a personal trainer to say, eat this, eat this, do this, do these. Eat weights, chicken breast for the rest this. of your life. <laughs> anyway. So when it was over, I mean, I feel like you kind of enjoyed this movie. I did. I would put this movie. I mean, it's been a while since I've seen some of the other movies um, that we've kind of brought up before, but I would put this movie above. Like the Wrath of the Titans. Yeah, the Sam Worthington Cap ones. Clash of the Titans. I don't remember which one was better. I feel like Clash was probably better than the first one just because it was a remake and so they just had a story to stick to. And the second one, they were like, let's make up a bunch of weird stuff now. <laughs> um, but, or like movies like Troy or 300. I mean, this is. This definitely kind of belongs in there, somewhere in there, where it's like, it's not great. I mean, I love Gladiator, right? Gladiator is one of my 50 top favorite movies, Os right? Oscar-winning Gladiator? It won Best Picture, Kay. yes. Many accolades, Oscar-winning film. That is probably, I mean, that's the, that and Spartacus, great movie. Gladiator and Spartacus are probably the top level. And then maybe like Ben-Hur. I mean, that's a big epic, you know. The original thing. one, yeah. not the remake. Yeah, the original Ben-Hur. Um, you know, these big larger-than-life Roman times sword and sandal historical epics. epics, right? Yeah. Then a step below that, you is probably, like the pop you know, culture ones? Yeah, like, you know, Alexander. This is, right. Troy, Troy, like you mentioned. Uh -huh. This is probably somewhere in the, you know, on the lower end of that tier. And then, of course, down at the bottom, you just have, like, all the, um, I think it's Steve Reeves, like, Hercules movies that they made, like, in the, the 60s. The Rock's version of Hercules? What about that one? Is that on par with this? Uh, you know, the thing about that, to compare that to this, this is definitely, like, historical, realistic, like, realism is in mm -hmm. this movie. Because they could have gone, they could have done a Clash of the Titans thing and brought mystical elements and put in some kind of story about, you know, the gods being angry and they're the ones who, 
you know, blew up the volcano and all this stuff. They didn't do that. They were like, no, this is just a straight up real life disaster movie. However, they did, and they did bring in like the people's perspective of the, at the time of, yes, this is the gods being angry. Right. No, they did. But there weren't like, it's not like the gods were literally there. Yeah. There weren't (laughs) supernatural elements supporting that. It was just like, oh, he's just full of crap and telling everybody, oh, you know, the gods have spoken now. This is somewhere, like I said, this is somewhere in there, like in the middle tier of, it's good, it's fine, it's a, if I had to give this a rating out of five stars, I'd be like, it's somewhere between two and three stars. Yeah. You know, it's not a one star movie, and it might be better than a two star movie. At the same time, it, I would give it the qualifier of, if you kind of like the disaster run for your life kind of element, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, we talked about that recently when we watched Geostorm. We're kind of like, if you like this movie, then this yeah. is a perfectly fine movie, but if you don't, maybe you're not going to like it. And the much. thing that this movie does better than Geostorm, which I feel is an important element of disaster movies, is those interpersonal relationships. And here you have the relationship between Kit Harrington and Mr. Echo, and the relationship between Kit Harrington and Emily Browning. Uh-huh. And you want them all to succeed. Like, you want them all to live. You care about them. You care about their story. Right. Whereas in Geostorm, those relationships are like, why do I care about these people? Yeah. Well, the other thing that, I, that occurred to me while watching this film, comparing it to Geostorm, is this film isn't, doesn't have the unbelievable ridiculousness factor that Geostorm does, because we know that this actually happened. That's true. Geostorm, we're like, how? This wouldn't happen. This is so nonsensical. Whereas, this story, Vesuvius did erupt. The city was destroyed in this giant heat blast. And and then covered in ash. And then, you know, uncovered by archaeologists way later. We can see, and like you said, they actually did model... The set designs and the city layout and the most, let's, let's say 80% of the volcanic effects and, you know, um, destruction was modeled after what actually would have happened. Geostorm is just ridiculous because you're like, wait, what? There's giant satellites that control the weather? And, and they combat, invented the word know. geostorm. Yes. The other thing, too, about this movie and what makes volcano movies in particular so like, enthralling, I feel like, is because they're a very real threat. That's true. Like, there are still active volcanoes, there are always volcanic eruptions all across the world that impact modern civilization, and it's horrifying to see on screen, I feel like. Right, I mean, I grew up in Washington, my parents, you know, remembered, I wasn't alive, because it was five years before I was born, but my parents remember Mount St. Helens erupting. Yeah. Like, it was a crazy huge thing. And, like, the ash, you know, however far it reached. Um, I mean, even in modern times, we've had, you know, volcanic eruptions shut down all the airports in Europe. Right. When whatever volcano was going off. It's, but I think, you, I think you make a good point, actually, and that does apply to this movie, is, so movies like Dante's Peak... That's kind of a disaster movie, like, we gotta get out of here kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But that's a better movie than a bunch of these other ones that we've talked about in the past. Because those are all, 
well, what if hypothetically this crazy thing happened and then the whole earth, it, everything just went wild and there was, you know, storms and what, okay, what if that, well, what if not that? Whereas, hey, what if this volcano erupts? Oh, crap, that could happen. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> scary enough on its own. And, like, why Twister is so great, too, because even though True. they kind of make it a mega twister or, like, a super big remember. tornado, it's still, like, yeah, this is real. This happens all the time. Right. Towns are destroyed by tornadoes, and it makes it more compelling. So, yes. if you're listening, Hollywood, make more realistic disaster movies. Yes, based on <laughs> actual things that happen. Tsunamis, I mean, volcanoes, twisters. Yeah. Mega twister. That's like, where's the move? Where's the disaster movie about like what would happen if Yellowstone erupted or Mount Rainier? Uh, or, the Yellowstone you know. one is called 2012. Oh, is that? Yeah, the Yellowstone called that erupts in that one. But that's not like the cause. That's just one of the. It's just one of the things. one of the things that happens. Yes. Because it's actually like the Mayan gods yeah. getting their revenge against the white well, man. Well, speaking of right? more disaster movies, we are getting a sequel to San Andreas where the Pacific Ring of Fire erupts. erupts. The whole ring? The whole ring. So look forward to that. So yeah, um, we're done talking about the, I think, the film portion of the movie. Yeah. And then we'll be joined by Professor B, and we'll talk a little bit more about the historical context and Greek and Roman history in general. Okay. And all the time we had you in class, you just said call you Professor B. So how do you uh, say your last name? <laughs> yeah, if you, if, if you had ever had me in a real class, I would have done the, the, uh, the little bit of theater that I do to explain how to pronounce my name. It's bow, like you take a bow, uh -huh. and fire shots. So bow shots. Okay, bow shots. That bow shots, Professor Bow shots. Yeah, that totally works. So, do you want to tell us a little bit, kind of, about your background, and then we'll go into the rest of it? Sure. I mean, I'm uh, so I'm in the history department at the U of A, and um, also the classics department. It's a fifty-fifty split. I'm a classics person by training, so I studied Greece and Rome, ancient Greek and, and Latin as well. Um, and in particular, uh, I actually don't study Rome. I study Egypt, uh, Greek and Roman Egypt, and I work with paper documents that survive from Egypt, um, and I'm a papyrologist, someone who works with those paper documents. Um, so yeah, uh, they, there's about a thousand years when the Greeks and the Romans are ruling Egypt, and there's a ton, there's thousands and thousands of pieces of paper written primarily in Greek, but also in other languages, that tell us all about what Egypt was like uh, under, over that thousand-year period, and that's, that's kind of what I do. I work with those things. Um, and uh, in particular, I, I looked in the past at things like crime and law enforcement to sort of figure out what kind of the police they had uh, in, in Egypt. So that's what that's I'm doing. Awesome. Yeah, I, mean, I, I like it. It's fun. What's the oldest document that you worked with? The oldest document I've worked with would be something probably from the, the early 3rd century B.C., so like the 290s, 280s B.C., um, stuff that's older than that, and they certainly have papyri, these pieces of paper that are older, but... You don't have anything in Greek, really. The stuff before then is primarily in Egyptian languages or in uh, things like Aramaic, other languages that were sp spoken in the Middle East. Um, and those are not things that I can do. So I'm focusing mainly on the third century BC and then forward. Uh, and the, the biggest, the sweet spot really is like between about 323 to 30 BC. This is when um, King uh, Ptolemy Lagos was one of Alexander's generals. 
uh, he takes over Egypt. And in 323, he accepts the title of king of Egypt and becomes the next pharaoh. And so he and his descendants rule until 30 BC, which is when uh, Rome conquers Egypt. And that's kind of the end of the independent Macedonian Egyptian kingdom. So that kingdom, the Ptolemaic kingdom, is sort of my period of focus. And I look at mainly at stuff that comes from that period. Are there any movies from this kind of era that you do enjoy? So you mean from the Ptolemaic era, from just sort of like the Greek, the Greco-Roman period? Yeah, well, I think, I think for kind of the layman, they're all the same. <laughs> <laughs> they kind, they kind of are all the same. They're like, uh, well, you, they call them what, sword and sandal movies? Yeah. And you, I, I mean, I was thinking that about the one that we I watched today, the Pompeii. It's, it's a pretty typical sword and sandal movie. Um, there's some things about it that are good. Um, in terms of just other movies about the ancient world, it's tough. I think when I was a kid, I saw movies that I really liked and I thought they were great. And then, you know, you watch them later on when you know more. And even if you enjoy them, that you're just, at least me, I, I'm sort of, I pick them apart and I get hung up on things that are wrong or whatever. Um, that's not to say that I can't enjoy them. And I mean, I, I liked, uh, I liked Gladiator uh, when Gladiator was out. Um, I liked Clash of the Titans when I was a kid. Um, I haven't seen that in a good 20 years, though. That'd be know. the original with the claymation and all the, 80, like, 1987 or whatever. Oh, yeah. No, no, yeah. the Harry Harryhausen claymation monster right. stuff. Yes. I haven't seen any of the new ones, but the old one, yeah, that was great. I love that movie. Um, no, I think there's some good ones, but uh, I don't know. I haven't paid a lot of attention to those kinds of movies in the last decade or so. So <laughs> you've sort of dragged me back into this world. Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, it's not bad. It's not bad. Uh, I probably shouldn't have, I probably shouldn't have stopped watching those movies. They're fun. So from what we could find, it looks like this movie at least attempted to be fairly historically accurate in terms of the town itself and the events of the volcano. They added a few things for dramatic effect. But yes. does it give kind of a close representation of what gladiator life was like? So that's a, I think that's a good question. I was thinking about that myself. Um, I imagine to some degree it must be fairly representative. It's tough to say because we don't have anything like uh, a first-person written account of what it was like to be a gladiator. We sort of can get we can get senses of what it was like just from bits and pieces from literature and from mosaics and, and other you know artwork primarily. Um, I can't imagine the day-to-day -day would have been fun and certainly the guys in this movie are you know they're kind of treated like prisoners and slaves and i thought one thing that struck me is that there's a lot of talk in the movie of, by the the guy the lanista uh the guy who's in charge of the uh, the gladiator camp and i forget his name now maybe you'll remember him the, the guy who's bossing around all the time um yeah i don't remember his name but and, i know who you're talking about yeah, yeah yeah i mean he's just sort of like unbelievably cruel and he's saying get up scum you know come on slave and I don't know. I mean, I, I imagine it was probably wasn't a great relationship between the gladiators and the guy who ran the school, but it just struck me as a little over the top, brutal and cruel, like just mm -hmm. to be extra cruel. I, I think that was probably a little bit, a little bit too much. But I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, living in a controlled environment and being forced to exercise all the time and um, knowing that your life was pretty much forfeit at any moment. I think they got that right. Um, for sure. And the idea that there would have been people from all over the sort of the, the links of the Roman Empire who might have ended up at a gladiatorial school, I think that's fair to say, too. Yeah. So I had kind of a question to touch on that as far as people being from all over. Yeah. With 
with the volcano, and I don't know how much you would know or you just have to take a guess, there would probably be people that would have no idea what a volcano is, right? You mean people living in Pompeii? Well, I mean, if so, for example, Kit Harrington's character is from Britain. Yeah. As far as I know, there's not really volcanoes in Britain. <laughs> so he probably would have been like, what is going on? And they would have been like, oh, no, it's fine. It's whatever. It happens all the time. No big deal. I, it sounds, but that actually happened in the movie, I think. He's talking right. to Atticus, the, the, big, the big African guy. And he, the geezer basically says the same thing, like, what's that? And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, it does that sometimes. Um, I can believe that the Kit Harrington guy wouldn't have known what a volcano was. Um, but again, he's clearly not someone who was ever really educated. Like, you, you see his origin. He's just this, you know, beautiful angel-faced baby who gets kidnapped <laughs> by the Romans. And for some reason, they decide that this six-year-old should be a gladiator. That, that's a little bit... I, that part I, I kind of thought was ridiculous. Like, why not just make this kid into a regular slave? What about this little baby-faced child says, let's make him into, like, an invincible gladiator? I'm like, okay. But anyway, I'm getting a little off track. <laughs> That's um, fair. No, but I, I would say uh, outside of areas where there were volcanoes, uh, it's I would definitely say people probably wouldn't have known what they were or known what to expect when they were erupting or, or became active after a while. Yeah, I was kind of questioning if even the people of Pompeii knew it was a volcano or if they just knew it was a mountain that sometimes shook. You know, that's a good question. I, there, there definitely are, there are recorded incidents in the decades before the eruption in 79 AD of um, at least earthquakes in the vicinity of Pompeii. So they knew about the earth shaking for sure. Um, I honestly don't know if there's any recorded volcanic activity before 79 AD. There might be, and if not, it's possible that no one had ever seen it blow or you know smoke or anything like that and they wouldn't have known what to expect um yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure what to, what to say about that so this is jonathan's question because it it kind of turns into a major plot point so i don't know how much you know about weaponry in this era, uh -huh. but it seemed like swords broke an awful lot is that <laughs> <laughs> normal <laughs> Well, you know, were we talking about like the practice swords, the gladiators? Oh, so there were there so were a couple the, points in the movie where it was almost like a key point in the fight scene where yeah. somebody had the upper hand, but then their sword got broken off at the hilt, and all of a sudden yes. they were about to lose. Yes. I mean, it's it happened good... at least a couple times, and so I was like, did they just not know how to make swords? What's going on? <laughs> or is this, or is it just a convenient story, you know, kind of dramatic device? Yeah. No, that's, that's also a good question. I think there definitely were different grades of weaponry. And um, depending on who you were, you might have been able to afford one or your job might have gotten you a better one. The one thing I would point to is sort of like near the end when, uh, gosh, maybe it was when the Kit Harrington guy is fighting against the, 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 the second-hand man of Keeper Sutherland, the, like the, yeah. the soul speak. Um, and he clearly has a better weapon than the other guys do. And one of the weapons breaks and, and, Ke and Kit Harrington another, gets another weapon and he even says like, this one is dull. Um, my, my impression is that the gladiators would not have had the best weapons. They would have had stuff that might've broken um, in part, just sort of as a, like a security precaution. You wouldn't want to give them stuff that would allow them a better chance at breaking free or ganging up on somebody. Um, aside from that, I, I don't know enough about metallurgy and the quality of ironwork in the time to be able to tell you anything about like whether swords just in general were, were junky. But you're right. I, I noticed that too. A lot of stuff seemed to be breaking and I, I suspected it was more 
having to do with the plot than having to do with just a, a rash of terrible weapons in Pompeii. Yeah, it does make sense that like the you know the runner of the games would want to spend as little money as possible on weaponry, right. and then probably get. But you're you're getting the same effect of people killing stuff. each other. The crowd doesn't have to know whether it's Damascus steel or just, you know <laughs> pig iron or whatever. So. So you mentioned point. you mentioned a little bit earlier that you have some things that you kind of pick apart in these types of movies. Is there something that Hollywood usually always gets wrong that bugs you? <laughs> Well, so one thing, I mean, a lot of my background is working with ancient languages, Greek in particular, but also Latin. So whenever they try to put language into a movie, I always sort of like my ears prick up and I'm like, okay, are they going to get this right? And, um, you know, in, in the past, there was one time when there was been a few times when I got sort of, you know, a little bit hot under the collar about the way language was used. And I don't know if, you, if you saw way back in the day, uh, The Passion of the Christ, the Mel Gibson movie about Jesus, yeah. um, you know, he you know, allegedly went to great pains to try and make it historically accurate and everything. There were a lot of things about that movie that were good in terms of sort of representing the period, but one thing that just drove me nuts was that they had, everybody was speaking Latin in that movie, and it's set, you know, it's set in Judea and Syria and the Middle East, and nobody would have been speaking Latin. Even the Romans there would have been speaking Greek. So again, I get that people think Romans, they think Latin, and that's fine. But it's one of those things that you can get wrong so easily, and it, the fix is is often easy. And there was actually a moment in this movie where I sort of did a double take because I think the, the gladiators famously, you know, when they're about to begin battle, they look up at the people giving the games and they say something along the lines of, you know, we who are about to die salute you. And they had that phrase in the movie a couple of times. And each time they did it, they did it differently. And they said it at least once in a way that was completely wrong. Like the gladiators said to the senator and the other people in the, like, the, the skybox, they're like, to those who are about to die, we salute you. And I said to myself, why are you talking to, why are you saying that they're about to die? That makes no sense. Um, and so I, I went back and I looked just to make sure I wasn't misremembering this, but sure, it's a Latin phrase. And yeah, the people who are speaking are acknowledging that they are the ones about to die. And it just feel, it felt like a stupid mistake that they could easily have fixed by hiring, having somebody on hand who knew Latin well enough to say, no, when you translate this, you don't have the gladiators call the spectators people who are about to die. I don't know. I, I, I kind of got a bit PO'd about that, but sure. it was one line, and, you know, that's my own pet peeve. So they say that, they say that line in the movie Gladiator as well, at least once or twice. And I actually, when they mentioned it in this movie, I Googled it too and basically found that there is somewhere, I guess it's Pliny, or no, not Pliny, he's the one that wrote about Pompeii. Some, yes. some famous Roman writer had used that phrase once, but it's not necessarily a phrase that was widespread, but it's an easy kind of, you know, slogan for gladiator movies to just go, oh yeah, gladiators always, <laughs> you know, said that, so. Yes. No, so, I mean. It's something that, yeah, you're right. It's basically recorded once and it becomes a popular touchstone for gladiator movies. And that's fine, but if you're going to use it, you have to use it the right way. Right. Like, don't mix your objects and your subjects up. That just sounds stupid. <laughs> anyway, it's just, I, it sounds stupid. But whatever, whatever. It's, it's, I guess I should be grateful that they even got that in there. So they, they get sure. some credit for using that phrase. <laughs> so what did you kind of think about this movie in general? Where would you... Say, I mean, as someone who loves sort of the history behind 
this type of movie? How did it do for you? I think I think they did a lot of things pretty well, and I uh, there were things I was really pleased about, and I think like you guys probably, I, I caught a couple of plot points, and I went back just to see whether or not some of the things they had brought in were based at all in reality, and they kind of were. Um, I mean, they did a pretty good job. Uh, the idea that you know, where uh, there was a festival going on at Pompeii, this Vinalia a festival in dealing with wine, and sure enough, uh, there was a Vinalia a couple times a year. Um, the one thing that uh, that was a little off to me, though, is that the eruption of Vesuvius is supposed to be toward the end of October in 79 AD, and I think those those wine festivals, the Vinalia, would either have been in April or August. So that was a little bit off, but again, you get artistic license for that, so that's okay. Um, <laughs> the the raid that the Romans did on southern Britain on the on the Celts that were there. Um, Again, they say, like, it's the raid on the horse people or whatever. And I was like, horse people? I mean, that sounds fake. So I looked. <laughs> they don't be called horse people. But there had, been, there had been a widespread uprising in southern Britain in 60 and 61 AD. So this is like, that was like a couple of years before the 62, which is what they gave in the movie. So even the idea that the Romans were there and fighting the Celts in southern Britain around that time was right. So again, they kind of played with the truth a little bit there, but they kind of got that right. So I was, I was pleased with that. Um, the one thing that I, I didn't understand that, that stuck out for me by the end of the movie, and I didn't understand it at all, was this idea they had in the movie that there was this resentment between Rome and Pompeii. You remember this? Yeah. This yeah. Was a big thing. And I was like, what is this? And like, you know, Keeper Sutherland's coming into the city and he says, he noticed that all the people are turning away from him. And I was, I made a note of this, like, what the hell is this? And yeah, and it's explained away as being that the Romans, that they, they, the Pompeians sort of don't like Rome. And I, I don't know where that comes from. I mean, I guess maybe if you're living in the provinces somewhere, you could be jealous of the big capital city. But the idea that people would be actively hostile towards like a Roman senator and they would turn away from him when he was coming into town. I don't know. That's, that struck me as a weird choice. And um, I, I don't know if you felt the same way about it, but I, I found that that was kind of unfounded. Not really based in reality. Were Roman senators representative of the actual empire, or was it basically just the rich, powerful people only in Rome that became senators? Well, there certainly were rich, powerful people in the provinces too. But I mean, I think you got to keep in mind that this is definitely a 99% situation where the 99% are poor, primarily illiterate people who are sort of scraping their lives together. Um, and all of the luxury, the luxury that you see in this movie and other movies is, is very much a less than 1%. Um, so certainly there would have been a higher concentration of wealthy, powerful senatorial class people in Rome, but there certainly were families, senatorial families that had, um, that had hometowns outside of Rome and certainly more in Italy than in other parts of the empire. Uh, but yeah, there would have been many more of them, uh, in the city of Rome than any place else. Um, so one thing is I think a lot of people like to romanticize sort of this time period and everyone's like, oh, I would have been like some cool warrior. I would have been this rich, whatever. What would the majority of people have been back then? Well, I think you probably might have been a tradesman if you lived in a, a big town or a city, maybe a cobbler. You might have worked at an uh, you might have worked in a tavern. Um, and then again, in, in some of the areas outside the cities, you probably would have just been, if you were fairly well off, you might have been a landowner. Uh, you might have owned an estate and had people working for you. Or you might have been um, you know, a subsistence farmer. 
a subsistence farmer who had a small plot of land, made enough, um, had enough produce to survive on, and then maybe sold some on the side. Um, majority of people wouldn't have had an education. They wouldn't have been able to read or write. Um, it would have been just sort of getting by to the next day uh, and, you know, taking care of your family, making sure you had someone to inherit uh, your land when you were dead. And most of the stuff going on in this movie is you wouldn't have seen, except maybe um, on a day when there were games, you might have come into the city and to watch what was going on in the arena. And lots of manual trades and agriculture, I would have say, probably the, the primary stuff that you would have done. That was one of the questions Jonathan had. So with the games, uh, that was kind of the main source of entertainment for people. That and like the theater, right? Well, so I think this is a... This is, I'm glad you brought this up because I think this is a question I often ask in my online classes when we talk about gladiators is sort of like, why was this such popular entertainment? And students often say, oh, well, this is all that the Romans had to do. And that's not really true. They had actually, they had lots of stuff they could do. I mean, if you can't read or write, you're not going to be able to have, you know, scrolls of papyrus and read in your house. But there's baths, which is where you can go exercise, you can hang out, you can bathe, you can listen to music. As you said, there's theater, um, there's games. We certainly know Romans uh, went to the bar and they played dice. Um, so they had lots of things to do. But I mean, certainly something like this, a big free show in the middle of the city with all sorts of exotic participants would have been a huge draw. Um, and that would have brought people in uh, when games were, were going on. I know a little, a little bit about Greek history. So prior to the Roman Empire arising, you had a bunch of city-states, right. right, that often kind of allied together, but you definitely had many large cities. So yes. in this movie, they present this idea that uh, Cassia's father, and probably we assume other ruling nobles in Pompeii, are seeking to essentially like upgrade and invest in the infrastructure and the buildings and whatever in, in Pompeii, much like cities in America do to try to draw, you know, business, draw more people, et cetera. Yeah. How, how accurate is that as far as what it was, what the, how the other cities in the Roman empire and in Italy specifically kind of how they were in row in relation to Rome, just being this one huge metropolitan region. Does that make sense? I, I, yeah, kind of. I'll just say some things and you can tell me if they okay. make any sense too. <laughs> sure. So I don't, you know, I think, I think it's certainly when you think about Rome, you, and everybody living in the empire knows that Rome is, you know, the most important place. That's where all the power is. And you want to forge a connection to Rome. And I, I don't know, I found, I didn't think this part of the movie was especially well explained. So yeah, like you said, there's this um, clearly Cassia's dad has this business interest in sort of like in having the Romans invest in the city. And the, the senator, um, you know, the Kiefer Sutherland guy, at some point makes a comment that Pompeii really is just like a vacation spot. And that actually, that's actually was kind of smart. It kind of, it kind of always was uh, a popular sort of tourist location from back in the days when the Greeks were living there too. It was a favorite spot for people to get out of the city. And certainly in Roman times, lots of Romans would go out to the Bay of Naples, which is where Pompeii is, and, and hang out. Um, but I didn't quite understand why, I didn't understand what the motivation was for doing all of this building. Um, maybe you caught that, I, I didn't really understand. I, I understood the idea of wanting to get the attention 
of the emperor and wanting, you know, maybe to get some royal or some some imperial patronage, maybe get some more money sent your way. But the idea of building up the city, um, that struck me as just kind of weird. Uh, that's I not guess, something that I ever really thought about. I guess within the that region and, you know, in Italy at the time, were there really any other major cities other than Rome? Well, I mean, there were there were various places that were popular. I mean, there's also Herculaneum in the Bay of Naples as well, uh, maybe not as big. Um, Pompeii, I wouldn't say, was necessarily all that different from any other of a handful of cities in Italy that might have been of varying sizes. It was just, you know, it had been inhabited for a long time, that whole area had, and again, primarily settled by Greek colonists uh, several hundred years before. Um, but it's not like it was like, you know, the second city. It's not like the Chicago right. of Italy. Um, right. It was it was nowhere near the importance of Rome. Nowhere near as big. Nowhere near as influential. It was just a place that sometimes Romans went on vacation. And so I yeah I don't know I, I don't I said I said the stuff I was gonna I said I was gonna say I don't know if okay. any of that stuff was useful. <laughs> oh, that makes sense. So one question I had um, about so this this time period is great fodder for movies. A lot of things happen. There's a lot of myths and kind of legends about real people and then fictional people. Um, is there maybe a story that you think would make a good movie, but Hollywood hasn't done it yet? From the like from the first century AD? Well, from any- From any, any, any area that, that you've studied at this point. Well, there's, that's a good question. I wasn't prepared <laughs> for you to ask me this question. I don't All know, right. I don't know how to answer <laughs> <laughs> uh, Or maybe there's a story that you like a lot that would be good or that people would find interesting. I mean, there's there's lots of, the first century AD is, is rich with all sorts of things you can develop. I mean, certainly right before this period, you have, you know, the the, the Julio-Claudian emperors. And of course, if you guys have ever watched I, Claudius or read the books, um, there's, you know, lots of great drama that's been done focusing on those first emperors. Um, the period under, during which this takes place is actually a period of relative stability. Um, and you know, it's at this from this point on that the empire kind of uh, gets on stronger footing and has a long period of prosperity. But it's funny, kind of right before this, um, so the new emperor that is you know referred to in the in the movie is Titus, and his dad had been Vespasian, who had been emperor for about ten years. But right before that, there had been this period of upheaval in AD sixty four when there had actually been four consecutive emperors because nobody could hold on long enough. I think that actually would be a, a kind of a fun thing. Uh, to see, kind of watching the first period of emperors come to an end, and then this bloody year of this utter civil war all over the empire, when a handful of guys are fighting for control and trying to uh, become emperor and then hang around long enough to make it stick. And it didn't for three consecutive guys until finally the fourth guy managed to uh, to bring it to a close. I think that would be a fun uh, subject for a movie or I mean even maybe even a miniseries because we have some pretty detailed sources for what happened in that year um, so yeah year of the four emperors AD 64 it'd be a good place to go that's a good title too year sounds of the four very, emperors uh, that's what all the sources <laughs> call it yeah they call it the year of the four emperors sounds very game of thrones-esque as far as the <laughs> yeah politically they could even get so. Kit Harrington to come back and start yeah <laughs> All right. So any anything you want to add that maybe people don't necessarily know about this time period or um, something about these types of sword and sandal epics in general? 
I, you know, I, I, I gotta, I gotta say, I like that they make them because you know the more people who get exposed to this period in time, the more, the more likely I continue to have a job. So <laughs> you know, I'm not gonna get on Hollywood's case for for doing these movies. And honest to God, I mean, you know, in general, this movie was just sort of a dumb movie. I mean, it was just you know the characters were not developed and the villains were really villainous and the love story was contrived and you know whatever, but. I think the thing that I would I would take away from this that I really enjoyed was that I think now more than in the last several decades, Hollywood is getting the details better. And I think I said already, like, you know, the historical setting, it's not 100% accurate, but they're clearly inspired by things that actually happened. They're thinking more about different classes and different categories of society. And I got to say, I, I got to give them a, a big pat on the back for sort of the visuals in the movie. I think they did a really great job. Um, of of illustrating what the city would look like, like the buildings, the temples. Um, it seemed, you know, more alive than in a lot of kind of the sword and sandal epics from, say, 50 years ago, where everybody's wearing this sort of starched white tunic and all of the buildings are gleaming white. And, you know, it doesn't look that. It looks sort of make it more chaotic and dirty and colorful. And I think the movie got that. So I was happy about that. Um, and I hope that people who continue to make these movies about Greece and Rome keep making it look grittier and, you know, kind of like more a reflection of today than people have uh, in the past, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there are certainly a lot of parallels you can draw between Roman society and ours today, um, especially, you know, in your class when we were studying those, it's hard to not see the, the similarities to American life and Roman life in some ways. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. There's all, there's all sorts of ways you can draw parallels. Uh, what, would you say something about equality? I say, yeah, as far as inequality, I mean, you talked about how the 99 versus the 1% back then, and obviously that's a big, hot topic today. Sure. No, I, I, that, that's something that certainly, I think, can resonate with students in particular. Um, yeah, so, you know, keep drawing those parallels, Hollywood. But, you know, get the Latin right. Please get the Latin right. That's all I care about. <laughs> so do you have anything you want to plug or talk about? Maybe, like, a, a book that you like or want to suggest? Or do you have a textbook that you wrote? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not going to plug my textbook. No, no those, things are, those things are pretty much garbage. I, the, you know, my... I mean, I have a scholarly book, but it's expensive and it would not be of interest pretty much. To, I mean, it's not of interest to me, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, I think if you're, if you watch a movie like this and you want sort of more, uh, more of this kind of stuff, there's lots of, um, there's lots of good, I think, historical fiction actually on Rome. And I'm going to totally forget the name of the guy. Um, I don't know if you guys know anything about Roman historical fiction. There's a guy um, who wrote a number of books about essentially this period, I think it's first century BC or AD, and they take place in different parts of the Roman Empire, and it's about a guy um, who is essentially like, uh, kind of like a, um, a Miss Marple or a, a Hercule Poirot, like a, a crime solver. And he's, he basically tries to solve crimes in Roman society, and the guy uh, gets a lot of the, the, the writer gets a lot of the details of Roman life correct. So it's kind of nice. It's like, it's sort of like a mystery, kind of like you'd see on TV or you'd read in a mystery novel, but it's set in ancient Rome. And I don't know, I would definitely point people towards books like that. There's even a book on Pompeii. I think the guy wrote a book called Pompeii, 
which is uh, just a drama set in the city. And I don't think it's a movie's been made out of it. Is it Robert Harris? Robert Harris. Yeah, yeah, that's the guy. So check out Robert Harris's books, people. <laughs> you should check out Robert Harris's books, absolutely. All right, well, I want to thank you so much for joining us. This was our, our season one finale for our <laughs> podcast. So thank you for being our, awesome. yeah. So thank <laughs> you for being our special guest. You're welcome. I enjoyed it, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for our season one finale of the One Star Bazaar. As always, you can reach out to us on social media to let us know what you think or make suggestions for what you want us to watch next. We are at One Star Bazaar on most platforms. We will be taking a little bit of a break, but we'll be back with you for season two starting in June. Thank you for all of your support and feedback, and we hope you'll join us for season two.